Imagine a world with no cold calling. A world where companies don't sell your data to other companies who want to pester you. At G4 Claims, we don't cold call and we don't buy a single lead from data companies. Oh, and if you're due any compensation from your car accident, you pay nothing to us at all. For full accident management support, including motor replacement, repairs and personal injury compensation claims, just search G4 Claims today. For help the way you want it. Uh, hi and welcome to this week's episode of the DW Podcast. I am joined by someone uh, in my eyes that I think is an absolute legend. I'm delighted to have him on, uh, Tash Papas, all the way from Melbourne, Australia. Thanks very much for, for coming on. Thank you for having me, mate. How's life? Life's good. Um, apart from this uh, lockdown that's, you know, that's been dragging on a bit longer than it it should. I mean, the rest of our country's um, back to normal. But apart from that, you know, I'm blessed. Still working, still being at Abseil and do the uh, window cleaning. I so can, I'm a lucky one friends. to have had a job. Yeah. I've noticed some of your videos on Instagram and I don't know if it's maybe just in your blood that you have to be a bit of a daredevil and, and take risks because I, I certainly wouldn't want to be up to the, the heights that you're at with the window cleaning. It's like skyscrapers and all sorts. Yeah, I mean, it, it was a job that I could, um, when I first got out of jail, I uh, had to film a video part for, um, before all this mayhem was um, finished. And I was working in a warehouse, packing boxes, but by the end of the day, my knees would be too swollen. So I needed a job where I could rest my knees, but I'm, you know, I'm not really an office type of person then I saw one day some guys um sitting in these seats just abseil and cleaning windows and another friend of mine just so happened to uh, know the guys who were abseiling and then the rest is history that's amazing started uh, pursuing that said a few prayers and then um yeah the guy signed me on without any experience and never looked back Never look back, mate. For those that, that don't know uh, who you are, I'd imagine the majority of people watching or listening to this podcast don't know exactly who you are and your story, but tell us a bit about Tash Papas and, and your eyes. I mean, from, from the outside looking in, it's born in Melbourne, Australia in 75. Uh, yeah. You know, brought up to Greek and Australian parents and then went to America and basically took over, took over the skateboarding world, challenging Tony Hawk uh, alongside your brother, Ben. and. I mean, I'm sure we'll cover it as well. There was, you know, you had a, a bit of a downfall and it looks like you're very much back on the, the straight and narrow and, and having a great life. Yeah, I mean, yeah, I mean, much like much like most people these, you know, these days, um, I had uh, really young parents and, you know, they didn't, um, they didn't really see eye to eye, you know, a lot of the, you know, the, I mean, the usual stuff, the fights, um, the um the family life that just wasn't uh, wasn't working you know so there was a bit of hurt in there and you know they both had to work and stuff so I had like a babysitter back back in the when I was really young who used to um well she bashed me a bit and so there was a bit of uh 
uh, childhood trauma there. But I mean, much like a lot of people who I've met, everyone's got a story, you know. But um, yeah, from there, I yeah, it's pretty full on actually. But um, yeah, like then I got sexually abused by some pedophile, and so then as I grew up. I kept feeling like I had to prove myself as a man, you know, because of what happened to me. And so I suppose that's where I got the chip on my shoulder that I had to go out and uh, make something of myself because I, because of what happened to me, you know, I thought that uh, made me less of a man or, or I'd let my dad down, but I had no idea at that point as a kid that there was such thing as a victim. So, you know, in my mind, I had uh, all kinds of uh, trauma you know, demons in my head just playing with me. So, yeah, I just thought I had to um, become the best at or be, at least become a world champion at something to prove myself uh, to my dad. But my dad never actually wanted me to prove myself. So, I think that was go figure. in your head and in your dad's head. You know, you- it was completely in my head. And when I finally told him when I, when I got older, he was just shattered, you know, so... He had no idea, but was, yeah. Was that someone so, that was close to the family, Tass, or was that just someone in the local area? It wasn't someone in the family. It was someone, my like these, there was this place in Maribyrnong where I used to go called Humes, and it was where all these guys used to ride motorbikes. And um, so I used to go down there when I was, you know, like seven, eight, five, six, seven, eight, and just get, you know, ask the guys to jump on the back and they just burn you around on KX 80s, KX 250s and and then when the cops had come they'd all burn off and you know get chased by the cops and so it was one of the guys from down there, yeah. So, I suppose at that age you yeah. know, you're looking up to these people and thinking, oh, who are these cool guys? Yeah. You know, they're giving us a, a shot on there, you know. Yeah, yeah. So I mean it's you know, one plus I can get out of it though is it's kept me um very protective as far as I can with my my son Billy, you know, because I sort of blew it when I was in America. Because I by that point I'd constantly been thinking I'd have to prove myself, had a chip on my shoulder, and it just bled through into you know, like it was good for skating, but it wasn't good for my relationships with people. And so I blew my relationship with my um ex-wife in America and in the process I failed my kids in America so I couldn't be there for them to protect them so that was the uh, hard lesson about it all but you know I made my bed and I'm just thankful you know God's merciful (laughs) gave me a second chance and I have a new family now and I'm just you know praying I can get my other kids in my life and possibly make the peace with Colleen you know and, and taking it back, you know, to those early days in Australia, you were always on the vert ramp in, in Melbourne alongside your friends and your brother. When did you realise, you know, that I've really got a talent here? This, I can take this further than just Australia. Um, I wasn't... It was never like... Like, you think, like, one day, like, oh, I'm, you know, oh, I'm going to... Yeah, all of a sudden, oh, I think I can do this. It was more like you skate with a bunch of guys and you get to go overseas and you skate with the other pros and you're constantly striving, striving, striving. And then you get to the point where you're doing all the same tricks as them, but 
it never feels like you've arrived because there's always another trick to learn. There's always, you know, like let's just say competition, for instance, you have to, um, even if you can do all the, the moves, you have to do them again on that day. So there's, there's, yeah, you never actually think you've arrived. It's just, you know, if you get blessed with a good day where you nail 17 tricks in a run that happens to win, then then you look back, you know, wow, I did it. But then there's always the next, the next comp. It's like you have to do it all over again. And, you know, I mean, I snapped the femur when I was at Woodward Skate Camp when I was 17. I'd crushed two vertebrae. So it was always like, you never really felt like, you know, you, that you, it's in the bag. It's, it was always like a struggle. And I always used to think, you know, like, oh, I couldn't handle living the normal life, just working nine to five. But looking back now, the stress of being a pro skater and having to skate through injuries and coming back, having to do the same trick, you just crushed a vertebrae on, you know, eight months before, you have to do that move within a month of coming off injury to get back on the comp circuit, way more stressful than the life I'm living now. So and it's just funny, <laughs> the, the mind games, you know, like. You touched yeah. on it earlier in the, in the chat. You, you mentioned all that mayhem, the, the documentary that came out in 2014, you know, about uh, your life as a skateboarder and, and also your brothers as well. And I think early in that documentary that for those that have watched it and for those that haven't, certainly get on it, you know, but you, you touched on it and you says that, you were skating in Australia and you're watching videos from, you know, pro skaters in America and you thought, I can do that. You know, I can go over there and I can, I think the quote was something like, we're going to smash Hawk, you know, we're going to take Tony Hawk on. No, no, no. The quote was, I'd, I'd always be in my room every night, right? And I'd, um, because of the martial arts I did as a kid, I learned dive rolls and how to throw. And I started realising all these martial art moves were, it's skate orientated too. It's like I'm a twist as a dive roll. So I'd practice these dive rolls on my bed. But what I'd be thinking in my head, I kept hearing from everyone, you would never be able to beat Tony Hawk, right? So I was what? I don't know, what? 14 or 13, 14, spinning my twist, rolling up one side of my bed, diving onto the bed, holding the board forward roll then 180 out on the other side of my bed and pretending I was doing a McTwist in my room before I'd learned them. And then in my head, I'm going, God, please let me be the one who can go there and beat him. You know, it was, before, it was just sent like an impossible dream when I was at, that's what that part was. Yeah. It wasn't so much like I'm, I'm going to, you know, like I've got to do it. I have to do it. It was more like, the way I was doing it back then, I was actually asking God to let it happen, you know, give me the ability to do it because I've always believed in God, you know. Yeah. I've always prayed and and sure enough, you know, that all started unfolding, you know. I had the, the Hill Brothers at that point sponsored my brother and I and gave us all the product we needed right when we couldn't afford it. So that was a blessing there. Um, you know, then got to know Tony Magnuson who came out and, they all saw that we were trying, we were trying. So it wasn't like Ben was more, Ben had more, um, he, he uh, learned tricks with less effort. I, I just try my ass off. I just, you know, and make sure I'd get it. 
you know, and then get it smooth after just going through absolute hell trying to get it. So it, it just goes back to that thing when I was, um, when I was, uh, you know, because of what happened when I was really young. I just, you know, I thought, you know, I'd let my dad down because of what happened. So I just wanted to prove I was, you know, something. <laughs> so I just had this yep. chip on my, you know, yeah. Was it 17 when you first moved to the States? Well, what happened was Tony Magnuson came out with H Street and um, I just slammed uh, not long ago. We just got in a bowl. I just slammed my back's playing up on me again, actually. So I've got to get my back straight. But um, All those years of skating. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But um, so Tony Magnuson came out. I think I was, what, 15 when we first went to America. And um, so we went there for a month, stayed with the Hay Street house, and then I went out there again when I was 16 and with my brother Ben. And then when I was 17, I uh, did work experience, went into uh, Hardcore Enterprises, which is Globe Shoes now. And I did the work experience. And then um, I just remember the guy I was friends with back at that point, Gregor Rankin, he was another pro skater, he said, you know, I remember him um, saying, saying, you know, giving me a talk. He's like, look, if you're going to do this, you better do it. Otherwise, get a job. And then that was the point I thought, right, I didn't think I could do it, but I was going to try my ass off doing it. There was nothing else. So it wasn't like, hey, oh, I can do this. It was more like I was trying it with all my might you know, just to make it happen. So I went to America, kept skating, kept learning the tricks, realised I had to get better at certain things and and then just kept slugging away, man. And then, yeah, things started uh, working out, yeah. It started happening. Was it, was it Tampa, Florida? You were in it first, is that right? Yeah. No, I first went to uh, California and then stayed with Danny Way and stuff. But when I got there, there wasn't, so much of a vert scene. It was a lot of street going on. And then I had to go to, um, I realised I had to get over to uh, Woodward Skate Camp. And so that was where I uh, filmed my first Wheels of Fortune. And then I, um, from there, that was where I snapped my femur. Because I, um, yeah, this is a trippy story. Because I I was started listening to this band called, um, this real satanic band, right? God-hating band. I was like full death metal. And then I got over to, um, right when I got to Pennsylvania, I got off the plane and then um, Woodward Skate Camp were like, well, you're 17, you're not old enough, there's no one to sign for, you can't come in. And I just spent the last of my money to get to Pennsylvania from California and I was hoping, like I was just hoping to get there, right? And then... um, get in so i got there then they're saying well you're underage you can't just come in and you know you need your parents signature we got to at least see your parents and this is back when it was faxes there was no you know it was 1990 like two or three i don't know the exacts so then i've heard that i can't get in and then i've just broken down i was 17 on my own in america ran out of money had to spend money on a hotel at newark airport and then I've got on my knees and I've said, God, I promise no more satanic music, no more 
I will, I won't do anything that you don't like if you get me into this skate camp, right? And I was crying because I didn't want to have to come back to Australia as a failure. And then my dad would have to pay for a ticket back because I just threw my other ticket away because I just, I, you know, I lied to my dad and my mum saying, yeah, I'll be back in a couple of months. Once I got there, I was just like, I'm not coming back until I'm pro, right? So I'm underage over there. And then I've prayed, God, please get me in the Woodward. And I made all these promises. And then, man, I got to, this was the best I'd ever skated. I got to Woodward Skate Camp, got in, everything's sweet. They said you can stay here for the entire summer for the three months. You just got to work in the kitchen, cleaning dishes for three months, and you can skate all summer long, stay for free and get fed. Brilliant. And that was when I filmed my Wheels of Fortune part. Then I had all these different companies. Uh, I think I was talking to World. I was... Um, and then uh, Mad Circle, and I wasn't sure who to go with, you know. And then, um, like an idiot, I started remembering that, you know, all these satanic bands that would get me hyped to skate. <laughs> and what had happened was I started skating so good at that. This was the most consistent I'd ever been in my life, right? And I never got back to that consistency. When you were 17? I was doing like I, like for the time, I only had a handful of tricks at that point. I ended up with more tricks later on in my career. But at this point, I remember there was a point I wasn't bailing any kickflip indies. I was doing alley-oop kickflip mutes, corner to corner on this ramp, heel flip gators, 360 airs, fakie fives, all these different tricks that were pretty, you know, like latest tricks at the time. And I just wasn't bailing. I just wasn't falling off, barely falling off. And it got to a point it was I actually started thinking, I'm like, I'm I'm God on earth. <laughs> and I kept forgetting about the prayer, how God yeah, had, yeah. Had not only got me in, it was the best I'd ever skated, right? And then this one day I thought, oh yeah, I'll chuck that deicide satanic band on. And I had no idea that this Woodward camp originally was run by a bunch of Christians. I had no idea. And here I am praying to God, right? And then all of a sudden, for one stupid day, I've put deicide on the system and it's like, oh, all this crazy satanic, you know, bad, bad, talking bad about God, talking like real bad, you know, like real anti-God lyrics to a bunch of kids, <laughs> you know, little kids that are, you know, in a, in a skate park. And I've jumped on this mini ramp, done a fakie hang up, no lie. When I've gone up, landed on the board for some weird reason, I'd backflipped off the lip, landed on my head on the flat, kneed myself in the face. And I thought, ah, nothing of it. Completely forgetting the promise I made to God. If he got me in, I wouldn't listen to this stuff anymore, right? Then I had to shoot, I think it was Lance Dawes or another guy. I'm not sure who it was, but it was for slap. They wanted me to shoot an alley kickflip mute, which I was doing at least six foot high, edge to edge, every time at this place. Sometimes eight footers, pretty good for the time. It was a smaller yeah. ramp. Yeah. Then um, I just said, all right, stand there. I'll do a little air the way it's going to look. And it was only a one-foot air, right? And then um, as soon as I did this little, I'd been, I'd been doing like eight to ten-foot airs all summer, not bailing. All of a sudden I'm bailing everything. I wasn't piecing it together yet. Then I did this little air showing him how I'd do it. I'd over-rotated, bang, snapped my femur in half on the bottom of the flat. 
from uh, an alley at Mute Air, a real small one, after doing eight to ten footers the entire summer. Didn't Jerry that I'd broken the promise to God, right? But then from that point, I saw who to ride for because Mad Circle, Justin Gerrard and Steve Douglas, they didn't really, they didn't care that I'd snapped my femur. They said, well, you'll come back from this. And they stuck by me while I was in hospital. Then I got a metal rod put in my leg. I snapped my femur right at the end of um, of uh, the summer. And then I, I busted down to Tampa, Florida, stayed in the skate park. You saw that bit in the movie, the Charlie Brown room. And then from that point on, I was, you know, that's when I started, you know, trying all different drugs in Tampa, smoking crack, doing tons of acid. And, and then I even, this band that I, pro- the band I promised I wouldn't even go see, uh, listen to anymore, I ended up at this guy's house. No right? way. Yeah, uh, Glenn Benton's house from, um, from Deerside. Full that, satanic. Is that because that was, the skateboard scene and the music scene was, was interconnected? No, it just turned out that my mate, who um, his older brother, knew the death metal scene and this band so happened to be from Tampa, Florida and I ended up going there then when I met him, He's branded upside down crosses in his forehead and he shook my hand. He's like, spread the word. It was like the opposite of Christianity. It was satanic gospel. And here I am getting stuck into it again with my fresh broken femur. And then there was one night I had a, I had like an epiphany in my room. I'm singing this to everyone wasted. Then I realized I'm preaching, basically preaching Satanism. And I've always ran to God my whole life, you know, and it was always God who delivered when I wanted to, Anything good that came my way, like um, my abilities, or I'd always prayed for. So it was a weird, <laughs> it was a weird turn of events. It was like the battle, you know. And I'd always, you know, when I'd start doing good, I'd be trying to do the right thing by God, and my life would get better. And then as soon as I started, you know, partying, and it's like I started getting sucked in and to the other side, and I'm hooked on all of these drugs again, and ended up going, you know, in and out of jail, and. So it was, it's been a battle. <laughs> it been a battle, to say the least. must have been challenging task for your, your parents as well because you were 17 in a foreign country, you know. They must have been wondering, what's he up to? Is, is he going to succeed? Like, you know, is he safe out there? What? It must have been I didn't talk to him for nearly um, eight months one time. <laughs> <laughs> I just wasn't thinking. And then I finally called him, like, oh, you're alive. You know, so, yeah, I was a nightmare. But it was all the trauma, you know. It was all the trauma. I just didn't think of anyone else. It just I turned full selfish, you know what I mean, because of this chip I had on my shoulder, mm. you know, because I thought I was gay, you know, and I, I was confused about it because the first sexual encounter I had was some, you know, bloke in his 20s doing things to me when I was six or seven. And then I first heard the word, you know, so I heard like I was young real young and I heard someone say oh that's a pufta and I was like what's that and then I explained it and I was cut to the bone I thought oh no if my dad thinks I'm that he won't love me anymore and then when he finally found all this stuff out it was um he was like it's not your fault like so yeah I always had that chip which led backwards and forwards then I started blaming God for not uh protecting me as a kid and but I can see now you know like once I went to jail after it, I mean, we'll get to that part, but when I was in jail, I, most of the guys I became friends with, I realised once I started talking to them, it was all the same story. 
sexually abused. A lot of them from a pedo grew up angry. Not that it's an excuse. Not every single person does it. But you, you, you sort of grow up, you know, you felt like a victim. And then you start to, you know, it's like a, as a pr- protection mechanism, you're like, well, I'm not going to be the victim anymore. I'll, you'll be the victim. Yeah. You know, you're on high alert, you know, and you, it's, you're always trying to prove yourself. And, yeah, it's a very bad thing. I think there's when, a massive uh, link there as well, you know, to, to, you know, people who are in jail and, and also, you know, childhood trauma. You know, it's a lot of the time you, you don't recover from that. It scars you for the rest of your life. Yeah, it can, you know, because I've heard of like some people it happens to, they either become abusers themselves or, but a lot of the guys I met, you know, they're just, you know, self-destructing because um, it's, you know, it's a, especially when I was growing up, it was the 90s and that, and, you know, my dad, I'd go to the footy with my dad and my uncles and they were Greeks from um, Alexandria, Greeks from Alexandria and Egypt. So they came over in one of the first real big wave of, um, you know, Greeks and Italians. In Australia, they're called wogs. So back when they first got here, that's the derogatory term, a lot of the Aussies, right, and the wogs, they'd be fighting. You know, it wasn't very politically correct back then, right? So I remember going to the footy with Dad when I was only like five, six, and it'd be my Uncle Terry, my Uncle George, my dad, all their mates, Hunch, all these different blokes from like Ligon Street and Carlton because they were, um, my dad grew up in the Carlton Commission flats. And then we'd go to the footy and then some, um, you know, in the Aussies, they'd be all Collingwood and then they'd be like, you know, you know like, oh, F, F off Carlton, you know. And then, that, then my dad and that, they just used to, they'd like love going to the footy for, um, so they could punch on. And I just remember one day my dad going, listen, Tuss, stand in this corner here. He goes, if you see dad get hit, don't worry. I like it. We're just gonna <laughs> we're gonna fix these Collingwood supporters up. Right. Because no one talks about Carlton. You get that? No one talks about Carlton like that. And my dad was a young dad. He was what in his yeah, mid-20s. And then I just remember looking back at this all in brawl at the footy and dad and my uncle's just smashing these guys and then them getting smashed and people getting bottled and I'm just sitting there watching this. And then with what happened to me, I thought, how am I ever going to live up to these psychos? Yeah. Right? I'm like, these guys are mental. You know, so my whole life I was thinking, how am I ever going to end up like that? So I was striving to, I wanted to, you know, be able to hold my own. But then when I heard, you know, the word poofter for the first time, Oh, I just I thought that was it. They're just gonna think I'm that and they won't love me. So that was where that um that chip on my shoulder came in, just yeah. trying to prove myself all the time, you know? Just to a certain extent as well. It, it probably gave you a bit of your drive, you know. You, you really, really it spurred you on to, to get to the next stage. And- no, it, it did, but it ruined it made it to where I um it just yeah, I'm an, it made me a nightmare. Yeah. Had to win everything, every argument. Yeah. You know, couldn't be wrong, couldn't be seen as weak. Made me a nightmare, you know. You, you touched on the, the self-destruction point, Tass. Was it, was it before, was it only in America that you, you discovered drugs or was that not really a thing in Australia? Was it when you got... No, the- no, I discovered them in Australia. Yeah. But like skating, I treated the drugs like another sport. You know, let's see how much we can do. Let's, you know, 
just go for days and days and how many at once. And then just, you know, everything was a everything was a contest. <laughs> it was stupid. <laughs> And, and your, your first contest, I suppose, was, or one of your first contests must have been mid-90s as well. I know that you, you certainly won the World Championships in 96. So from that dream of, you know, I'm never ever going to be able to, people telling you you'll never beat Tony Hawk, you, you went over there and within a matter of years, you'd done it. Yeah, I couldn't believe it, actually. It was, you know, like now I'm now looking back. Because at the time I was cocky, you know, but I was doing tons of drugs. I was too loud for the crowd. In hindsight, you know, I wish I had have had respect for my elders, you know. Yeah. You know, he was there first, you know. And when I did all this mayhem, right, when I did the interviews, I had a couple of beers before some of the interviews and I was fresh out of jail, right, so I was still in prison mode, still a bit angry. My kids were, you know, I'd lost my kids in America and I vowed I'd never failed my daughter and my son. Next thing you know, I'm deported, I failed them, right? And I was always scared because oh, I'm always always over the top about, you know, anyone going near my kids because of what happened to me. And so where I've lost my train of thought, what were we talking about? We are talking about, you know, in 96 when you, you went over and beat Hawk at first. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So... You, you, were saying, you were saying you were quite cocky, and I think that was probably to do with you. Yeah, yeah, the right. cockiness, because it was the drugs, and I was always trying to prove myself. And, you know, the, it was the, you know, like, oh, that's right, that's what we're talking about. Like, it's now that I understand how blessed I was to be able to have achieved that dream, you know, because once I was there and I was in it, um, at the time, because I thought, like, I'm going to run away to America and if I become, you know, if I can beat Hawk, prove to them I can do it, then that means I'm not weak because of what happened and my life will be different now and everything will be um, happy, right? But once I'd achieved that, I was still, you know, like, in my in, inside going, well, all right, I've done this, I still feel crap. I feel like I still have to prove myself. And, and then winning that comp, that it didn't change anything. I still had um, my issues to deal with, yeah. you know. So at the time I was very ungrateful and put on this big show, like, yeah, yeah I'm the tough guy, party guy. And, but it didn't, um, it didn't fulfil like I thought it was going to. So from 96, I'd, you know, I'd worked, they'd worked out I'd had a spondylolisthesis where I'd um, had broken my back when I was a kid, which is another story. I didn't even know it at the time. I'd crushed something and something snapped off. But then I was told, you know, this is all in the docker. I mean, we don't have to go over it too much. All you have to do is watch the film. But um, when they worked out I'd crushed a vertebrae, um, I just was like, well, if I can't skate, I'm just going to keep partying. So from 96, it was straight into a year and a half straight of just, you know, piles of just, I bought uh, with that $10,000 I won, I bought 10 grand worth of Coke and a brick of it just in my dresser <laughs> and just um, just drowned my sorrows from the broken back, yeah. And for those, that, for those that don't know the story, you know, it was, it was remarkable. You know, it was, 
a tournament and, and it went went down to you and Hawk head to head. And before that, you you broke your ribs that day. You know you. Yeah, I broke the rib. I slammed on a seven twenty and. I'd hit sideways so hard that the bottom ribs popped up over the top of the other one. So it looked like a, like if your ribs are like that, the bottom one popped and sat on top of that one. Right. And I had to pop it back down. So it was like really tender. Was there ever a thought in your head that I'm, I'm in too much pain here? I can't go out and, and do this final run? Yeah, of course. Yeah. But I thought if I can just deal with the pain through the movement of the trick, I'd get little glimpses of no pain when I'm, say, standing on the flat as I'm rolling across the flat, do the air, grab the board, spin for a second, and then you have to tuck to land it. So it was just excruciating pain in the times of trying to make things happen. But then there'd be, so it'd be like roll in, pain, cruise, pain, cruise, pain, cruise. So it was you know you just take it in zaps <laughs> the video of yourself when you get told that you'd won you know it's, it's hilarious it's like as i said, didn't believe it. i didn't believe it. yeah i didn't think i'd won i mean hawk he's mate he's he was always hard to beat he was definitely always hard to beat he's all he was always on and but he was always you know he he'd play it you know in at that point anyway he'd play it he, he's he'd stayed around the six foot mark, four foot to six foot mark, but then different trick every wall. So I thought he'd won that comp anyway. So, but I was, you know, they because I think it was the first time that they'd seen like you know going ten foot high on a you know smaller vert ramps back then with kick flips, and so I think you know that just um, you know they gave it to me that day, you, you but I didn't believe. You must see yourself, you know, looking back, Tass, you must see yourself and also your brother and I suppose Tony Hawk as well, you know, you really were pioneers of, you know, vert skating back then. You know, it was street skating was kind of coming in at a stage and you, you took that vert one to the next level and kept it relevant as well. Well, I was just, you know, my favourite skater was Danny Way and Colin McKay and same with my brother. And to me, they were the guys who were pioneering. We, we just got to the point where we... We were consistent with with it on vert, but the video part we were watching was, I think it was Plan B questionable, and so to me it was Danny Way and Colin McKay. You know, I, I was just wished we could be as good as them. You know, but we, you know, they were to me they were the best. But my brother and I, we were good in competitions and under the pressure, and you know, so. Yeah. I loved it when you spoke previously in interviews about, you know, you and your brother pushed each other to the edge. If he was number one, you wanted to be number one. And if you were number one, he wanted to be number one. And I suppose that challenge, it's, it's that sibling rivalry as well that must have pushed you to the next level. Well if, well, if Ben wasn't there and I got beat by a couple of other guys, I probably would have accepted it. Oh, yeah, well, they're good, this and that. But because it was my little brother, I was like, no. Nah. <laughs> I'm not having that. I can't have that. It's my little brother, right? That's <laughs> so right. it helped. Yeah. And because, you know, I was a nightmare, Ben just wanted to beat me to rub it in, you know, because <laughs> we'd fight a lot. So it did work, but it was, you know, it ended, it ended uh, sadly, that whole thing. Ben's suicide, of course. But, yeah. I suppose, you know, you've spoke about it previously and obviously Ben got caught, you know, smuggling cocaine from Australia back, uh, America back to Australia. And then he was, 
unable to compete for three years. Did was did you feel a bit helpless at that point, Tass? Was there, you know, you you felt like you wanted to help, but it's almost out of your hands, isn't it? Well, well, as I said, we were all off our we were off our heads hard at that point, right? Yeah. And we'd always talked about it because of how much the prices are in Australia, but I didn't think he was going to actually go through with it. And then I hear he'd gone through with it and he's called me saying he'd stuffed up. And then I was just like, you know, what have you, you know, what have you done? You know, and yeah, it, it sucked. That was the start. I mean, yeah. I mean, for anyone who's watching, you know, if you watch the doco, you'll see it. But it was um, a helpless thing. It was hard for him to be able to... Um, be able to go to a normal life while I was still in the States. And I just kept thinking, and I, you know, we had, I didn't think I'd be able to operate in a normal world. You know, I didn't think I could ever do a nine to five job. All I knew was skating. And, you know, and plus being that cooked on the drugs, you just, there's no clarity, you know? Of course. Do, do, yeah. you, do you feel that, you know, that Ben's almost downfall from going across to Australia with their drugs, do you think that, you know, complimented your downfall to a certain extent as well, do you think? I know you've touched on it before. We were already on our downfall. That's the thing. That that just sealed the deal that he he um, couldn't get back to the States to skate. That just sealed the deal. But um, we were already on that path anyway. We were partying hard, doing lots of drugs, didn't think, didn't really care to play the game or, you know, just wasn't expecting to live past 30, to be honest. Yeah. So and I, and I, just think, didn't, I think for young yeah. people that are skateboarding and, and, you know, they're maybe 17, 18, 19 just now that you think 30 is an old age, you know, you don't, you don't think anybody's going to live past that, but it seems like you yeah, guys... Tell me about, yeah, I'm 45 now. I can't believe it, mate. <laughs> it seems like you guys really, you know, you lived life fast at that point, didn't you? There was no stopping you. Well, it's... I mean, look, it's it's not so much just because you're young. It just depends on when you get caught up in drugs. I mean, there's drug addicts these days, late bloomer guys who get into the ice in their 40s and they never recover. They, they get full ice heads from 40 on, 50, 60, die in it, you know. You're just um, you're better off if you're going to go down that route. I mean, you, you're better off not doing drugs. It's, uh, it's a bad door opener, you know. Um, you just, um, you know, if you do get it over with in your younger years, you can somewhat recover. But if you get stuck into it when you're older, which I've seen it happen to other people too, it's hard to start again when you're older. You don't have the energy to rebuild, work normal, going from good money to have, you know, starting at a normal job and, you know, so it, it just depends when what age you start. But it doesn't matter when you start you sort of get blinded to the reality of life and you'll just um, just live fast until it's over, until you're either dead or in prison, yeah. Sometimes think about, you know, what, what would you have done differently now if you had to go back and do it again? Because, I mean, I, I know that you've, you've mentioned before that being Australian and going into American, an American environment, you know, it almost seemed like you were the outsiders from the start. Well, yes and no, right? Yes, on the point that Christmas time and, you know, holiday time, you, you never get to go be around your own family. 
if you're stuck there because I'd stayed and thrown a ticket away and didn't have a visa. So that part would be easier to be American, to be able to live there and chase your dream. You can treat it like a normal job. But because, like, for me what it did was it always just felt like I was on some massive holiday in, you know, fairyland or Disneyland or heaven to me, skate heaven. So I never, you know, could, it was, it was never a chance to really be grounded because I was like, I'm in America. <laughs> living the dream. Like rules. Yeah. You know, I'm living the dream, you know. Like if you could, so that's the part that, you know, that can you feel like you, you can't, you, I, I, but me personally, this isn't every Aussie. There's other people who have gone there and been street business and been switched on, but that's where the drugs sort of ruined it for me. But, um, yeah, I mean, for the most part, though, if, if I had kept my mouth shut and hadn't been so cocky, I mean, I had a lot of good friends there too. So, you know, like any sport, you know, you there's always going to be competition. So it's not so much if you're the outside. I should have played the game better. But I get a chance now to talk to a lot of people who are um, doing it really hard and, you know, and I get to... You know, I get a lot of, because of all this mayhem, I get to talk to a lot of, I get a lot of messages of people where, you know, you know, brothers or sisters or family members have suicided and um, people who are struggling with drugs and, you know, because when I first got out of jail, you know, I, I didn't I didn't do drugs for the um, three years I was locked up. But then when I got out, I just kept having these rage issues and I kept, um, without fail, I'd always end up relapsing again. And I wouldn't want to do it, but I'd, I'd, it's like I would just go through the motions, something bad would happen, I'd feel bad, I'd have a few drinks, bang, next thing you know I'm doing ice or I'm doing coke. And it sounds like an excuse, but it was just a pattern I just couldn't break. It was like, you know, like, like people who just can't stop smoking cigarettes. It sounds easy, it's an but it was. Yeah, it's an but it was. It was just something I just couldn't break. I mean, I'd go a long time without doing ice, and then I'd see a movie with the ice pipe in there or someone shooting up. Then all of a sudden, I'd have a dream, and I'd feel it like I was on it, like my tongue going numb and feeling the rush and all this stuff, and then, bang, I was back up and running and I was going to church and everything. And then basically um, I remember when I was in the States, my dad, you know, because he was a martial art teacher and he was no stranger to, you know, violence and stuff, but when I used to snap, he used to trip out. He'd look at me and be like, you need an exorcism. Like he'd say I'd look like the exorcist, right? And then finally um, after, because I had a lot of prayers answered in um, prison, you know, like like it was – no doubt it was God. He couldn't have made certain things happen, right? It was just the way things unfolded. I mean, I know a lot of some people might not believe it, but there's also a lot of believers out there. They'll know what I'm talking about. But then when I got out, I kept, you know, and even my wife, Helen, she, um, who I'm with now with Billy in Australia, she, she started seeing like a blankness come over me and she knew it wasn't me in there type thing. And then I got led to, um, this church called Oracle Ministries and they do deliverance, you know, and I, I started getting prayers up deliver, delivering me from um, just a spiritual oppression from 
from drug addictions, from um, rage. And, you know, like, I know it might sound nuts to a lot of people, but when I first got my first uh, few deliverances done, you know, I'd start yawning. They'd say you can, some people start vomiting when they're getting these spirits cast out of them or they um, start you know, yawning or crying. Me, I yawned like 20 times in a row, mate. When I yawn normally, you only yawn once or twice and then you might catch one off someone else. Man, I yawned 20, 20 times, one after the other. I mean, I've got no reason to lie. Yeah. I know people who just think you're cooked, you're this and that, right? But I'm telling you, this is what happened and I felt lighter. And then all of a sudden I was able to resist the urges. I was It was just crazy. And then I kept working on this deliverance. And my, my friend Pete McMaster, I mean, he's on YouTube. He's delivered a lot of people. I kept pursuing the deliverance. And now I've managed to get off my um, antipsychotic meds, which I was on for 15 years. Amazing. And I've, it's, mate, and, you know, because in the West, they like to talk about everything, you know, they like to cancel out the spiritual for the most part. But the West, we're the only country. I mean, now the new age stuff's coming in. People are starting to believe in that. But for the mo- you know, for the most part, every other civilization, most other parts in the world, they all still believe in the spiritual. You go to Africa, there's witch doctors, voodoo. And I've, you know, because I opened myself up to that stuff with the drugs and, you know, like in uh, the Bible, it says that drugs is, falls under sorcery, pharmakia. I used to think sorcery was just, you know, like make-believe Harry Potter stuff, ah, the sorcerer. Yeah. But no, sorcery is, you know, you, you, you do that many drugs, you're opening yourself up to the spiritual realm, but in the wrong way. So once I started reading the Bible and I started hearing, reading things like Jesus cast out demons and it says to break strongholds and you know all these you know like uh, your bad habits can be a stronghold and the spirit you know like how i'd feel out of nowhere just all of a sudden i'd feel and taste meth and smell it after not touching it for years and then be just drawn to it to all of a sudden after yawning 20 times in a row lifted gone being able to control myself not needing seroquils or Lexapro's anymore. Like, I've got no reason to spill this because I know people are just going to go, you're cooked, you need to be back on your meds, right? <laughs> but I'm telling you, it's real. And because, as you mentioned, you know, that you, you had a you, you had a relationship with God from a, a very young age and then obviously... I would always pray. But yeah. back to what you were saying, would I have changed things, right? Yeah. To me, what I'm thinking now is this is the best thing that could have happened all the bad stuff because of what's going on now i mean i know it's painful but at the end of the day we are all going to die we're not taking anything with us right we are all going to die we're all going to front god whether they believe in it or not anyone we're going to front god we're all going to die and if all the mistakes i made has put me in this position now to when these people who are struggling get in touch with me there's a few crew i've put them onto some my friends who do the deliverance they've seen big changes in their lives they're getting over things so back to what you said would i have changed anything no i don't i i I mean of course if i had the chance i wouldn't want to hurt the certain people i did but i can't go back and i can see this is the best thing that's happened to be able to help other people because at the end of the day i'm halfway through my life we're all going to die soon anyway i mean life is short 
my dad's gone, my brother's gone. I just want to do the right thing by God. So, and uh, you know, I, I, as yeah. I, you had this relationship with God from a young age, but I suppose maybe going into prison, you know, brought that back to you because you were spending days and hours reading reading the Bible and, and being around people who, you know, were obviously very dangerous people as well. It was maybe a comfort zone for you. Well, well, it wasn't so much the comfort. I'm a realist, right? And this is people might laugh at me saying that, but I am. I'm actually a realist, right? If, if I wanted to feel good, I would go and get, you know, like, you know, 600 bucks of Coke or, you know, a bunch of ice, needles, heroin, and I'd shoot up to feel better. So if it was just words in the book and I wasn't feeling peace come, I'd be like, this is a load of crap. I'm just going to keep doing drugs until I die, right? But the fact is, um, peace came, um, and you know, just, just people. Uh, the fact that me and Helen are still together through all of this is another miracle. Like, she's. I mean, with what me and Colleen went through, me and Helen went through even worse, and she stuck it out. You know, and that's a miracle in itself. And I remember I had a friend, right? He was a pretty big ice dealer in, um, you know, that crystal meth in uh, California. He was, you know, moving a lot of it. And I remember him telling me, because I was starting to go to jail quite, you know, a bit. And he's just like, you know, Tuss, you're better off. Just get yourself a Christian chick. Because when you go in, because, you know, I'm talking to him, he's going in all the time. I'm always getting in trouble, starting to go in. And he's like, well, when you go in, he, he said, he goes, they think that God's watching them, so they won't cheat on you. <laughs> and... And they'll look after the kids because they think God's watching you. He became a pastor, man. Oh, yeah. <laughs> so he, he took a Christian girl on because he got sick of being cheated on, right? And then he's ended up in prison and then, boom, he's found God to top it off. He's become a pastor and quit that life. Right. So all these psychos I knew would turn into God and then I'm in there. And then even my dad, we were never... Yeah, we were never really religious, except for my yaya. Me and her used to, when I was real young, but then I, you know, went the wrong way. But then my dad in the end, who never really believed, he'd read the Bible and he's gone, listen, he goes, I know people don't believe it, he's gone, but with my life, with everything I did, he goes, the Bible's actually real. I've paid the price for everything I've done. You know, God won't be mocked. <laughs> you know, you want to live a certain way. He's gone, look what's happened to me to us. I've used to be really violent and did a lot of bad things when he was growing up. He goes, my son's died in a murder-suicide. You're a complete train wreck, drug addict. I don't know if you're going to survive. He's gone, I've read the Bible. It's real. He goes, you need God. All the advice I gave you when I was young, he goes, mate, we should have been reading the Bible. He's gone straight up. All the answers are there. Bang, dad dies two weeks later after that phone call. Then I'm on a rampage, jump on a plane to South America. Then I... um. Next thing you know, I'm locked up because I'm trying to bring a kilo of coke through. Because I remember I was with Helen and I've looked up to the sky and I've, you know, sworn to God at you and bring it on. How much worse can it get? Then I've come up with the idea to, you know, I'd stay, I stayed up for two weeks, you know, probably a few nano naps here and there, like just blanking out, but I was shooting up speed the entire time. I had a bowl of it and just finished the lot while planning this trip to South America to pick up a kilo of coke. Then I'm, you know, just bang, ended up in um, Sydney jails, right? Yeah. And then I remember yeah. <laughs> what I said to God, bring it on. Yeah. You were with Helen yeah. when you went to Australia? Tuss, yeah. What was that? 
you, you were with Helen when you went to uh, sorry, yeah, 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 yeah. So then, so I, yeah, yeah. So I was with Helen, then jumped on the plane to Argentina to pick up these drugs. And next thing you know, all that shenanigan happened. I got another talk I did where it can get into a lot of the detail from um, South America. It was the finer details. That's on YouTube if anyone's interested. Probably that gets into Yeah, you could because yeah. we could just talk for hours, right? But anyway, I remember finally being in my jail cell and I wasn't so tough anymore. <laughs> so I've gone from if you bring it on, God, to please, God. I don't want to be in jail forever because <laughs> Billy was just born and, you know, my my um, my um drug courage is wearing off and I just didn't want to be in jail and I didn't want to fail another kid. So I started reading the Bible and, man, was it real. And then just the prayers, the answers in there, uh, just, man, I prayed for, like, there was one story, there was one kid in there, right, I was praying for him. He was like an 18-year-old kid in one of the big, you know, big jails. We're in, um, we were in uh, Goulburn in Australia, in uh, X-Wing, pretty violent jail. And um, he had this cellmate who kept trying to rape him every night, right? And this guy was gang-affiliated. He was in for armed rob. Um, he was with one of the bigger gangs there. And if you're an Aussie or a Greek or Italian, you consider the floater in Australian prisons, where when I was in America, if you're white, you either go with the Nazi skinheads, which I'm not a bloody racist, so you either go with them or the Peckerwoods, which is the whites. So I went with them. So when I got to Australia, I was like, okay, so who's the white rep? I go, white rep? What are you talking about? I'm like, yeah. The, and they've gone, mate, you're a floater, right? So me and this kid, you know, we're just on our own. So you're either, all the Aussies are either bikies or you're with the, the Curries, the Aboriginals or the Lebos and the Asians. They all stick together. And, well, this is the Sydney jails anyway. I didn't do jail in Melbourne. But um, we're just floaters. So this kid, this guy every night, we were just cracking jokes because sometimes, you know, this is, you know, when I first went into jail, I hadn't really, you know, God was answering prayers, but I hadn't read much Bible yet, so I was still a bit loose, you know, really bad taste in jokes. We'd always put the fear into new kids who'd come to these jails. You know, they'd be in line. I'd be just taking the piss, you know, just like, oh, this one's cute. And then they'd turn around and then you just blow a kiss at them and then just do their heads in, right, until they get to know you. So I started doing this and this other guy I was friends with. I didn't really know him, but we were just having laughs. And then anyway, he was actually cellmates with this young kid who I became friends with. And then he's come to me, he's like, Toss, I've worked. He goes, you, you just joke about it. He's gone, this guy, he's actually trying to rape me. And I've gone, are you serious? Oh, no. And then I'm, because it was his cell, I've gone, bro, no way. I just forgot where I was, you know. I was, and he actually was trying to rape him. And I'm like, well, what do you expect me to do, man? He's gang affiliated. If he finds out you're, ta he, you're talking about him, he'll just stab you, orders bash you, send you to protection, and then I'll cop it from him and all his guys in all the different jails. I'm not even from Sydney, right? I've gone, mate, there's nothing I can do. But he was making fun of me for um, reading the Bible and being a Christian, right, because he had his slayer written on his, you know, he thought he was hard, young kid. But I'm just going, well, I've had prayers answered, mate. Will you give God a try? You've been making fun of it. He goes, I'll try anything. Let's do it. So we prayed Psalm 23. He said he'd um, do it God's way if he got him off his back, right? At the same time I was reading the Bible, I was reading in Exodus 
that God said, I'm the God of hearts, you know, I will harden Pharaoh's heart or, and soften it seven times or whatever the amount was with the signs and wonders just so you can see that I really am God. And then I'm sitting there reading this going, really? I'm the God of hearts? What's this mean, right? So then we've, but I knew prayers were getting answered, but the Bible was getting hard to stomach at times with some of the stories, right? So we've, um, so we just started praying together. And then I was thinking, well, maybe this will be more personal evidence for me. Right after we finished praying, and he was like heartfelt praying to this, praying, right, to get this guy off his back. Within an hour, this guy's come in. Mate, this is a guy who was like, you know, 28, in front, Rob, tough guy come in acting like he was a 12-year-old boy in trouble. He's going, oh, did yeah. he say anything? Like completely dropped his courage. I'm like, nah, bro, he's cool. No one said anything. He's got, oh, okay, cool, Tuss. Like he wasn't in his gang anymore. It was weird. It was like God's, you know, made him cower. He's the God of hearts. He went and told him straight after that when we're in the yard. He goes, go get a cell change. If you say anything, you're going to get stabbed up. But if you don't say a word, we're sweet, it's over. He got a cell change within a couple of hours of praying that prayer with me. And that was more confirmation for me how God answers prayers. And then the list can go on. I can go on and on and on. So, mate, that was when I was like, whoa, okay, you're real. All right, sweet, Bible's real. This is a trip. I might not understand it, but it's a trip. And do you think, Tuss, that, you know, all this tragedy had to happen to you for, for you to really realise this? You know, you lost your brother, you lost your dad, you, you lost your family in America. You know, do you think if that hadn't happened, it might have taken longer for you to realise? Well, the thicker you are, the bigger punishments you need. So I was pretty thick. <laughs> <laughs> I needed some serious um, punishments to wake me up. And, and when yeah, you- 100%. Yeah. And, and, and yeah. do you think that if you, you've tried to, would you ever try and, you know, rekindle your relationship with your family in America now that, you know, you're a reformed character? Well, look, like, you know, you know, I think Colleen's heart softening. I've been talking to her brother, Terrence. They've seen I've, you know, trying my best. They've seen I've changed. Um, I was a real nightmare for Colleen. I'm really sorry about all that big time. Um, but Colleen softened. She let Terence send me some of my own, my medals for Billy to have. I haven't been in touch with my kids yet. I hope one day they can, they can forgive me for failing them and the pain I caused their mother. And but um, there's been a little bit of um, there's been a bit of you know um, talk between me and Terence, and I'm just hoping that Colleen can find it in her heart to forgive me and. That we could, you know, like I understand that I had to be cut off because if I was in Australia and now in America, I couldn't go back there. I mean, it just would have been torturous just to talk to them the whole time on Skype and yeah. when are you coming home, daddy, and all this stuff. Like it's a painful situation, but, you know, I'm, I'm still praying that it happens. But I've had a small victory, you know, like Terence is at least talking to me now with everything that went down. I mean, I wasn't a nice person back then and, I'm just thankful for that, you know. And I take no news as good news. If he doesn't tell me anything about my kids, that means nothing bad's happened. So I've got to look at the positives. And I suppose that that makes you a better dad, you know, to, to Billy out in, in Australia as well. You know, you, you don't want to lose him. You've got a great relationship there. I've seen you out skateboarding together as well. And Yeah, nah, Billy, you know, I mean, don't get me wrong. I'm still a work in progress, you know. I'm not... <laughs> not perfect yet. <laughs> no one's perfect, mate, but... 
I'm, um, I definitely hate the life that I've, I, you know, I hate what the devil has to offer. You know, it's fun for a season, but then, mate, it just leads to a heartache. What, what, advice, really what advice would you give to, you know, your kid that's getting into skateboarding and, and get his future ahead of him? What would you, what would you say? Well, Billy, funny enough, was because um, he's pretty short for his age, you know, me and Billy, we pray a lot, right? Um, he um, was getting bullied when he was at school and I was getting close to, um, this is when I first got out of jail, this kid was, you know, picking on Billy and I was, had the, you know, the old, the old thoughts coming in like, well, I'll just grab this, this kid's dad in front of this kid and belt the dad. And go, you touch my son, this is going to happen to your dad every time type attitude. But then I was like, how can I do that? You know, like I'm supposed to believe in God. And I was like, well, actually, Billy, come here. When I was in jail, I had dramas. We prayed. And, you know, I got, I mean, I got no reason to lie. <laughs> Me and Billy, we prayed one night. Billy prayed for this kid. And then the next day, the bully became his mate. So, bang, next day, prayer answered again. And this kid was hitting him, pushing him around, and then they became mates. So, so Billy understands that prayer works too, and God has his back. And I'm, I'm sure there'll be many skateboarding fans uh, watching this, wondering if they can see any of your, your tricks once again. You, you eventually got that 900 landed as well. You know, you should have yeah, got thank, any thank you, God, for that. Yeah, I was really sore at the end of that. I'd been through... Uh, <laughs> too many injuries before that then jail and then to be able to get that after all of that I was pretty appreciative and for my mate Peter Wilson who built the mega ramp for me to be able to do it on so yeah are you still skating regularly then yes. no I haven't I've been skating bowls and street with my son you know I um crushed my vertebrae again riding mega and you know I just was putting too much emphasis on thinking that I'm going to get my kids back by trying to take over the world on my skateboard again. And that's not what our God wants. I'm just going to trust him as I have been and I'll just skate for fun now. You know, if I want to, if I want to get back into mega, I will. If I want to get into vert, I will. But at the moment, Billy and I, we've before COVID anyway, we're riding a lot of motocross because I used to ride moto before, um, I got into skating, so I'm, you know, I've got some mates, um, Shane Boyd, he owns the track down at Park 4 MX, and my mate Daniel Murray and Jesse and um, Chris Camilleri and Swiv and all these boys, you know, psychos on motorbikes, and so Billy and I, we've been having fun with these guys. It's, it's like mega, but faster. <laughs> More dangerous. And it's got suspension. Yeah, and there's a lot of prayer involved because you can come off bad on a motorbike. So we're praying protection all the time, every time we ride. So you want to stay close to go up when you're on a motocross track. Oh, it's been an it's been an absolute pleasure talking to you, and thanks so much for your time. I really really appreciate it. Uh, no, thank you, brother. <laughs> <laughs>